0: She is plain in her dress, but that plainness is the best of every article. Her hair is white, her teeth beautiful, her person
1: rather short than otherwise.
2: She is everything that is benevolent and good. I honor her as a second mother and receive from her all those attentions which I should look for in her who
1: bore me. She is one of the most estimable persons that one could know. Good, sweet, and extremely polite. She loves to talk and talks very well about times past.
0: He has so good a character of her that he had rather you should have her than any lady in Virginia. Nay, if possible, he is as much enamored with her character as you are with her person, and this is owing chiefly to a prudent speech of her own. She was preceded by a servant about a half mile ahead and two young gentlemen on horseback. Just before them, a mulatto girl behind the carriage and a Negro man-servant on horseback behind. In case the title of this episode didn't give it away, all of these were descriptions of the woman who has come down in history as the First First Lady of the United States, Martha Washington. On behalf of the consummate hostess, Mrs. Washington, I bid you all a fond welcome to this special episode of the Presidencies of the United States. I shall be your host, Jerry Landry. Before getting into the subject matter, I'd like to note that the date of release for this episode is very intentional. Today would have been my mom's 68th birthday. Her name was Betty Landry, and I'd like to use this episode to acknowledge the role that she played in my speaking to you today, beyond, of course, the whole childbirth thing, which was also admirable and very much appreciated. For those of you who don't know me, I grew up in southeast Louisiana, just south of Baton Rouge in Ascension Parish. If you look at a map and find where East Baton Rouge Parish, Iberville Parish, and Ascension Parish meet, that's where I grew up. A little place called Alligator Bayou. My mom encouraged my love of history, taking me to see historic sites in the state capitol as well as New Orleans, though she hated driving in the city. We also went to many of the homes on River Road along the Mississippi River. And those experiences taught me to not just take what I was experiencing at face value, but to ask questions and learn more. As there were times that the story that was being presented wasn't the whole story. This podcast and my studies in history have been an attempt to provide greater insight both to myself and others. And thus, I'd like to dedicate this episode to my mom's memory and her legacy. She loved learning about Southern ladies. And thus, I think she would appreciate being remembered on an episode about a woman from Virginia. For the intro to this episode, I asked family and friends to lend their voices to the various descriptions of Martha Washington. So I'd like to extend special thanks to Toyin, Cato, Aunt Barbara, Mark, and Alex for contributing to this special episode. When studying pre-20th century presidencies, the narrative is often dominated by men, but part of my goal with this podcast is to show that a presidency is not just about the office holder or even people in appointed or elected office. Even in its earliest days, the presidency could not be what it was without the contributions of others, whether paid or not whether compulsory or of their own volition. One figure who we've touched upon many times in the series, but who has not gotten much of the spotlight in Chilnail, is President Washington's wife, Martha. Just to lay some groundwork before we begin, this will be an episode in three parts. First, I'm going to give you some backstory on Martha leading up to the presidency. Then, I'm going to invite in my special guest, Feather Schwartz Foster, a historian who focuses on the history of the First Ladies, to give us some insight into Martha as an individual, her role as First Lady, and her legacy. We'll wrap up with a look at the post-presidency years for Martha and a couple of final thoughts. Sound good? Okay, then here we go. Between 12 and 1 o'clock in the afternoon on June 2, 1731, at the family's home in King William County, Virginia, Martha Dandridge was born to Jack and Fanny Dandridge, the couple's first child. Early in life, she acquired the nickname Patsy, often spelled P-A-T-C-Y. Her family went back four generations in Virginia, and thus was well established in the colony's planter class, though the dandridges were not in the upper rungs of that class. While it is estimated that there were 15 or 20 enslaved people on the family's plantation, Chestnut Grove, they did not have any enslaved people working in the household, from what historians can tell. Thus, Patsy, as the oldest daughter, would have been expected to help her mother with household duties as soon as she was able, including helping to watch over her younger brothers and sisters, seven in all that survived childbirth. Along with learning household skills such as managing livestock, making linens and clothes, food preparation, and tending to a kitchen garden, it is expected that, like other young women of the time, Patsy was taught social skills such as how to comport herself in a highly gentrified society various styles of dancing, and the dignified way of how to ride a horse. She would have to function in Virginia Planner Society, but it was expected that she would find a suitor somewhere in the middle of that class, maybe a little higher than the Dandridge's, but not much. Instead, to the amazement of her family, when Patsy was 17, Daniel Park Custis came according. You couldn't get any higher than Custis in Virginia society. He had a well-established lineage, and his father was one of the richest men in Virginia. Custis was described by Martha's biographer, Patricia Brady, as follows, quote, A bachelor 20 years Patsy Sr., he, Custis, was an active, dark-haired man of average height, standing 5 feet 6 inches, although he sometimes claimed an extra inch, somewhat stout, with large, dark eyes that radiated kindness. Part of the reason why Daniel Custis was still a bachelor at such an advanced age was his father, John Custis IV. The elder Custis had thwarted all of his son's previous matrimony attempts, and there was no reason to believe that he wouldn't object to this one. Luckily for Daniel Custis, Patsy Dandridge was not just any ordinary young woman. When John Custis threw a fit upon hearing of his son's intentions, Patsy took the bull by the horns and went to meet with John Custis one-on-one, after which he dropped his objections and Daniel and Martha were married on May 15, 1750. Before they could be married, John Custis passed away in November 1749, which meant that when the two were wed the following May, Daniel Custis was the owner of, quote, nearly 18,000 acres of prime farmland, houses in Williamsburg and Jamestown, nearly 300 slaves, and several thousand pounds in English treasury notes and cash. This rise in social status would set the course for the remainder of Martha's life, though she could not have imagined at the time just how her future would end up. Likely, as the newlyweds were still both relatively young, they could be expected to have many happy years together. In reality, they would only get just over seven years. That time would teach Martha how to move in the highest social circles and and the material markers of wealth and power that would, at least to proponents of the established system, convey confidence and stability in an ordered, stratified world. She would also learn what it was like to have a child of her own, as she became pregnant less than a year into the marriage, and on November 19, 1751, gave birth to a boy that would be named Daniel Park Custis after his father. Though she likely drew some from her experience in helping to mind her younger brothers and sisters, Martha's motherhood would be made easier, with one of the enslaved women in the Custis Holdings being brought into the household to serve as nursemaid to the infant. With her marriage to Custis, Martha's domestic life would become enmeshed and intertwined with slavery and would remain as such for the remainder of her days. A second child would come into the Custis household as Martha gave birth to Francis Park Custis, known to the family as Fanny, in April 1753. But a few months later, tragedy would come into the household and remain a well-known presence for the next four years. Young Daniel Custis would die in February 1754, while his sister Fanny would follow him a few years later in April 1757, just before her fourth birthing. There would be some joyous occasions as the Custis household welcomed John Park Custis known to the family as Jackie, upon his birth in the fall of 1754, along with Martha Park Custis, who would become Patsy the Younger in 1756. However, their domestic world would be shaken on July 4, 1757, when both Jackie and his father fell ill. While Jackie would recover, Daniel Park Custis would not, and died on July 8. With his death, Martha became a widow at the age of 26. With these many losses, Martha would learn coping mechanisms for times of emotional stress that she would have reason to employ in the future. For now though, let's pause in the story of Martha Washington as we're getting into ground that has already been trodden in episodes 1.1 and 1.2. If you haven't listened to those episodes yet, they'll pick up Martha's story when she, as a wealthy widow, is courted by Colonel George Washington with the two marrying, then going through a revolution together, so on and so forth. At this point, I'd like to transition to the second part of this episode, my conversation with Feather Schwartz Foster. One note before we begin. As technology is not perfect, there are a couple of points where the audio slips in quality as we were speaking via telecommunications and Google Voice. But I believe the insight that Feather provides is well worth a couple of seconds here and there of technical difficulties. Feather is a historian and author of presidential and first ladies' history. To date, she has published three books on the first ladies with her latest entitled Mary Lincoln's Flannel Pajamas and Other Stories from the First Lady's Closet. She has delivered numerous lectures in various parts of the nation and participated in radio and television interviews, including an appearance as a guest historian on C-SPAN's First Lady series, which is highly recommended for anyone who hasn't seen it. Feather also lectures on a regular basis at the Christopher Wren Society, the adult education venue in Williamsburg, Virginia, associated with the College of William and Mary. I had the pleasure of meeting her through a Facebook group, the American History Fanatics, which is a fun and informative group for anyone interested in American history. Feather was gracious enough to offer her time to discuss Martha Washington. So without further ado, let's turn to that conversation. So... To get us started, can you help us to understand uh, Martha Washington a little more uh, in terms of her personality? Uh Martha basically
1: was a domestic lady. Uh she grew up in a plantation life. She married when she was 17 to her first husband uh and uh, had a huge plantation via her first husband. And after he died, she managed that plantation for about a year and a half until she married George. Then she went to his plantation and made it into a huge plantation, and she loved it. She loved every aspect of being the plantation mistress.
0: And so how would you say that that uh, prepared her for her role as First Lady? She didn't have a clue what a
1: First Lady, and they didn't even use that term, what she was supposed to do. She was plain and simple. Mrs. Washington or Mistress Washington and she ran his household. And, uh, as part of the plantation mistress of a very vast estate which, uh, Mount Vernon had become by the time uh, George was elected first president, They had a tremendous amount of entertaining. She was an elegant hostess. She made sure that everything ran smoothly, including the meals, including the accommodations and whatever she had to do. And she was there as his uh, helpmate. And uh, that's what she believed that her role was going to be.
0: Excellent. So, she was involved um, both in public functions, but then also just running kind of the day to day.
1: Mostly, mostly the day to day, and I think most wives you're talking about into the 1700s, most wives believe that their jobs or their function in the world is, if they had a happy marriage, was to uh, primarily to see to their husbands well-being and and care and feeding and raise the children raise the family have a good solid life that was her function as far as the public uh part of it she had over the past 10 years or so 15 years even before uh, possibly more uh before george became first president she met all the, uh, what should I say, the movers and shakers in Virginia society, in Virginia's legislator, le- legislature, she had met the governor, she had met uh, people of prominence. So this was not an unusual thing for her. She was comfortable.
0: And I know that she spent some time uh, while General Washington was involved in the Revolutionary War that she actually came up. Uh, to Valley Forge and to wherever he was based and uh, spent time there. Um, Do you think that that helped uh, to prepare her as well for for that role uh, whenever he became president?
1: Um, Martha went to Winter Quarters uh, wherever that was going to be, Valley Forge. She was in Morristown a couple of times. She in Philadelphia. She was up in Boston at the the beginning of the Revolutionary War. And it prepared her in a way of meeting strangers, uh, because wherever she went, the, what should I say, the, the society dames, the, the people of that area, the ladies of Morristown or of Philadelphia or in the Valley Forge regions, would come to call on her. And she would have to uh, meet and greet, and she was she was the celebrity in their midst and so they would take their cue from her uh when she went to those places she would meet the society ladies and and women of that area who came to call on her as a matter of uh respect and and uh, recognition of her status as Mrs. General Washington which was a big deal and uh so she influenced them for instance. Uh Martha was a domestic woman, like I said, she but she was also an industrious woman. She did her knitting and she was making socks or, or sewing shirts or pajamas and nightshirts or whatever she was for the soldiers or whatever she had to do. And she was the one who influenced the ladies that if they were gonna come to call on her, don't come in your fancy clothes, come in your just plain old clothes and bring your work baskets, bring your knitting, bring your sewing, and we'll sit and we'll have tea and we'll chit chat and all but we will do work while we're doing it. And in that way she was influential.
0: How did she feel, you know, transitioning into um George becoming the first president, how did she feel about about that transition and about this remaining in this public role?
1: By the time George Washington became president, Martha Washington was in her late 50s. She was now 58 at the time. And as a personal aside, I do have some insights on how 58-year-old women feel and behave. <laughs> Trust me on that one. And the one thing that is universal about just about every 58- or more-year-old woman that I know is that they ain't about to change much. They are what they are and what they've always been. Uh She would have much preferred to remain at Mount Vernon. She loved the place. Uh, George would have preferred to remain in, in Mount Vernon. He loved the place. They liked their life there. But he was elected. They felt it was their duty. And her duty was to do whatever George wanted her to do. And that was pick up the place, pack up, move everything. Let's go to New York. We're going to be there a while. Uh, what do you need? I'll see that we get it fixed up for you. Um, and so she went, uh, and she, uh, they fixed the place up. They rented a house on Cherry Street in New York down in, uh, the, the battery area of New York for, any of you listeners who don't know where that is, it's way down uh near where you get on to go to the Statue of Liberty. And uh she had a rented house, they had it furnished, they had the biggest ballroom they could find in a in a rented house so that it could hold about a hundred people. And Martha moved in with her two grandchildren that they were raising. Uh, uh, Nellie and uh, George Washington Custis, um, he, and they called him Wash. And I think Nellie was about ten, and Wash was around eight at the time. So they were little kids. She had to take care of them. She had to supervise their education, their daily life, everything that they needed, as well as his household.
0: And so, thinking about that um, that household role, and I know, um, and as our listeners are aware. Uh during those first couple of years they did quite a bit of moving uh both in New York and then when the Capitol moved to Philadelphia. Feather, what would have been some of Martha's day to day duties in the president's house and, and how would these have differed from uh her duties at Mount Vernon?
1: In Mount Vernon, Martha it was her place. It was her house, it was her household. She had the run of it. She could do whatever she was, wanted, and if she wanted to get up at five o'clock in the morning, go into the kitchens and supervise, and you know, she did whatever she wanted to do. In both New York and Philadelphia, they were towns. They were they were cities. Um, they, they didn't have the populations they do now, but they were cities, the largest cities in uh, in the country, and. She was watched a lot, and I think that unsettled her. Uh, when when I mean watched, oh, uh, Lady Washington is going out. Oh, which carriage did she use? Did she have two horses or did she have four horses? Where was she going? What was she wearing? Martha did not like that. Uh, she did not like the um, constricture of it of uh, pay for instance when she wanted to pay calls well maybe you shouldn't pay calls maybe you should just receive callers you know you shouldn't go visit somebody and she did not care for that and so she changed some of her daily habits and didn't go out very much Uh she had to uh prepare for one or two of these, what they called levies, uh, public receptions every single week, where anywhere from fifty to seventy-five to a hundred people would come and call on her, and it was very difficult for her to figure out how to do this without to maintain the balance. And this probably is the most important thing because it it was the mark that she left was maintaining. The balance between being warm and friendly and and personable, which was more or less her her basic nature, and being monarchical, to have the right amount of distance between head of state and everybody else. It was a very hard line for her to maintain, Uh, and, and she did it pretty well, pretty well.
0: And I know that was one thing that we talked about uh, when we were uh, beginning planning and talking about this episode, uh, was this idea of Lady Washington, that she she didn't like that.
1: No, it was not her title that she didn't say, call me Lady Washington. Uh, George Washington didn't say, call my wife Lady Washington. She was, as far as she was concerned, Mistress Washington, uh, the, the general's wife and that was fine for her everybody else was calling her lady washington as a mark of distinction and um she permitted that i mean if they if that's what they wanted to call her it certainly wasn't insulting but she wasn't going to be saying oh no call me patsy she she wasn't going to do that uh but uh she didn't really care for it that much
0: and i know that Um, thinking about, uh, the differences between their lives at the president's house and their lives at Mount Vernon. Um, but then there are some things that, uh, were carried over. Uh, for example, uh, they did, the, the Washingtons did bring slaves up from Mount Vernon, uh, to work in their household, uh, while George was president, um, was Martha involved in the management of the slaves at the household and if so was there any difference between her her management of them in New York or Philadelphia versus uh down at Mount Vernon?
1: They brought a few. They had a lot. They there no question about it. They had a, a lot of uh of slaves. Uh, Martha came to the marriage with more than 200. George had a handful. He said, but listen, one is too many. But even as how, they brought a few of their most trusted and their their best, and they brought them with them because they were, quote, part of their household. They had known them. Some of them had been born on Mount Vernon, and and, and they brought them with them. And they were basically household slaves, not, not field or, or, people who worked on the plantation. They were the, those who could serve, those who could take care of Martha's, uh, wardrobe for her, her lady's maid to help her with the children. And maybe they had about six. And because of the colonial law, uh, which was still in a lot of ways part of American law, which was really just forming in in the 1790s. Uh, um, the the ways that the law worked and the different state laws is that if a slave were in free territory or for a free state like uh, Philadelphia, the Quaker city, which did not like slavery. Uh, or in New York, if they were there for X amount of time, I think it was around six months, uh, they could actually become free or they could sue for their freedom. And so, uh, George Washington would rotate them back and forth from Mount Vernon, uh, under that wire so that he didn't have to deal with that problem as well as all the other problems that he had on his plate. Um, Martha would have been One of the very, very few people that these uh, servants that they brought up with them, that they knew her. They, They would come to her, Mistress Washington. They had known her for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years. They had known her. So she was their their liaison. She was their contact. If they had a problem, they went to her and Since they were domestic slaves with the possible exception of George's valet or driver or some you know a personal servant um she was in charge of them uh and her attitude primarily was always this is how she grew up this is something that I think a lot of people do not understand um, is how things were then it's the then part that screws people up a lot because they think everybody then thought the same way that they do now which is not true at all (laughs) at all Martha grew up with slavery since she was a child so did her parents, and so did her grandparents. I mean it had been a part of their lives for for a hundred years
0: well and and that's one thing you know even in the modern day, I think we're still coming to terms with that you know not only did people in the past not necessarily think as we do nowadays, but even people in the in our present don't necessarily think as we do. Um, and and that's one thing and we'll get more into this uh, in the narrative um, because we'll be talking about the Oni judge uh, situation but uh, when Oni sought her freedom and and left the Washingtons uh, Martha just couldn't understand why she was wanting to escape why she was wanting to leave them because you know this whole idea that she's she saw herself in this role as as uh, a protector a mother of of the the you know the household matriarch and she just couldn't understand why Oni didn't think that was enough
1: <laughs> no, no i understand Martha had she did not understand as far as she was concerned she treated her slaves well you know, all right. Uh, well, as far as uh, certainly as good, if not better, than many of her contemporaries, the people that she knew. And this is how you did it. She was good to them. Their slaves were all well fed. And they had clothing and they got Christmas presents at Christmas. They got, you know, new shoes or, or bolts of cloth. They uh, lived in. Uh comparatively decent quarters um you know it wasn't Mount Vernon, although some did live in the house uh but uh they were taken care of if they got sick. It was Martha who would be the first you know first doctor on hand. She would go down there with her little medicine kit and and say, You know, oh gee, you got a bellyache ache or this or that' Uh, and if they needed a doctor, there was a doctor that they would send for to to fix a broken leg or or whatever they could could do. Martha believed that she was kind and 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 fine and and good to them, and couldn't possibly understand what is it, what else do you want? You know, <laughs> she she couldn't wrap herself around that too well.
0: And and to your point, you know what you said earlier. One slave is too many, and and, and she just couldn't get that. She couldn't wrap her mind around that idea. So.
1: No, no, she couldn't. A lot of a lot of people uh, could not uh, wrap their minds around that too much. Uh, Martha was hurt by it. She felt that she was being insulted. That that this this young woman that she had favored, she she liked only. She had taught her a lot of of everything she knew about sewing, and Martha was very good at it. She let only do the fancy work, which was some, quite a privilege. Uh, she uh, she treated her particularly well, and Martha was very hurt of, uh, that that only would just run off and. And and say no, I don't want that either. So goodbye, I'm out of here. No, she, Martha did not. Um, she she was very hurt by it. She felt and she could never trust her.
0: And I think the timing of it also kind of played into um, what eventually happened with that situation. Because you know this this is close to the you know you're getting well into the second term and starting to get to that point of, okay, well, is Washington going to run for a third term? And and George and Martha like, no, 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 we're not doing this again.
1: (laughs) They were tired, and they were considered, they considered themselves, quote, elderly. They were, by that time, in their late, you know, in their past 65, they were older, they wanted to go back to uh, Mount Vernon and, and spend the rest of their lives there, and and just have a nice, nice, pleasant retirement. They were tired. They had been George Washington had been in public service for 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 more than twenty years. He wanted out. It was time for him to retire.
0: And so, as they were going through this transition, um, did Martha work with the incoming first lady, Abigail Adams, to help with the transition? Any? No,
1: um, no, not really. She knew Abigail Adams because they had been for eight years in on again, off again uh, physical proximity. I mean, they uh, Martha and Abigail got on quite well. Abigail left, uh, uh, letters. Well, she wrote to everybody and all the Adamses wrote to everybody and they never threw away anything. You know, we have a wealth of stuff from them where she had said that she and, uh, Lady Washington lived in perfect friendship. They got on very, very nicely. Uh, but Abigail was back and forth. Uh, to Massachusetts quite a bit, and Martha went back to Mount Vernon when she could um and uh but as far as um what you should do, what you shouldn't do, or anything, Martha did not uh give Abigail any advice. I think there is a letter that um Abigail had sent to Martha saying. What should I do? Any advice for me? And Martha sort of ducked the issue and suggested that she believed that Mrs. Adams was well capable of charting her own course, you know, that to that effect. So there, there wasn't any kind of uh, instructions or manuals or you have to do this, you have to do that, or, or anything like that. Um, and... Uh, but she did set Martha did set the tone, and the tone at that time was a lot less friendly. And I'm I'm using that word very very broadly. Um, you, they, they, it was far more courteous rather than friendly. It was pleasant, but there was a distance, and that distance was required.
0: And so that was kind of what Martha brought into this role.
1: She brought it in. Abigail continued that role. It was, uh, you know, there was that kind of a distance. The distance closed with Dolly. Dolly was friendly.
0: She definitely, she, um, and and part of it, you know, you don't really see it in uh, Thomas Jefferson's time. Well, you You see it more with Dolly taking on kind of this role that we now think of as First Lady, but it's definitely the overall administration is more of this Republican virtue and open door and you know opening opening the front door in your in your slippers <laughs>
1: yes yes and and Dolly <laughs> greeting her guests herself rather than having them presented to her. Martha had them. You know, the, the visitors would come and she would be seated on a chair on a little raised platform, not a big high platform, but maybe a couple of inches, a small little platform. And she would be sitting on a chair and she would usually have Abigail with her possibly if she was there. She might have a, uh, maybe her granddaughter or one of her nieces. you know, they had big families. And, uh, she would, uh, she would sit there. And she would be uh her guest would be presented to her. One of uh one of their aides or assistants, uh or one of Georgia's secretaries would say, you know, he would escort Mrs. So and so in and he would say, Lady Washington, uh um uh, uh may I present Mrs so and so to you, and Martha would take her hand, or maybe she would just sit and smile and nod and and say good morning or uh, it was very uh, much more formal, much more formal. they figured they couldn't they couldn't screw up too badly if they were formal and and kept the distance without being too monarchical without being too monarchical that was That was the key. We had just had I mean, a big rebellion against monarchies,
0: yes. And and I think that's one thing that, you know, in, in studying both the presidency, but then also these other roles, you know, the First Lady, um, mm-hmm. one of the things that we have to appreciate is that there wasn't a manual. This They were setting the tone. And really all they had before was this monarchical and, and um, aristocratic heirs to go from, and trying to figure out, you know, what what to do with this legacy, but establishing something new. And I almost think that the the Jeffersonian ideal, the, the getting closer to the people, couldn't have happened without this this link, without this being the first example.
1: You are absolutely right. Absolutely right. They had to chart a course the best they could with no examples of anything else before them. There had never been this kind of government before. I don't think people realize that either. There had never been this type of of a government of the people where it is elected, where you don't have a monarch or a princeling or an emperor or a a duke or a grand duke or any of those kinds. You don't have any of that. And when they did have it, you had to go back uh, 2,000 years or so on a much smaller scale. And this was 13 colonies. Uh, over a, a, a thousand or, or twelve hundred mile, uh, uh, coastline. It was, it was widespread. It was large. Certainly not as large as it is now. And it was covering maybe a million and a half people. That was a lot. And to have, and to have absolutely no form of government like this before. How are they supposed to behave with the people? And that was one of the reasons why I think George decided, uh, that one summer he would go up to New England and one summer he would go down to Georgia because the people needed to see him. They didn't have television. They didn't have the Internet. They didn't have radio. They didn't have much of any. They didn't have photography. You were at the mercy of a portrait painter and how, you know, if it was any good or not. Um, And that's why there are very, very few pictures or paintings of Martha Washington. A lot of them were not from life. A lot of them are more from imagined or how we remember her a little bit. Uh, but they didn't have that, so George went out let the people look at me. They read in the newspapers they've heard about me, but they have no idea who I am, or uh he needed to press the flesh a little bit and this is something that he also uh put into effect that type of i i have to let the i have to let the people see me uh as they are and and By the time Dolly Madison came along, and that was not that far off. It was only, you know, maybe another um, 10, less than 10 years, because she filled in for uh, Thomas Jefferson a lot. Uh, She had learned a little bit from Martha Washington, too. You know, Dolly was at some of their levees. Dolly in, in Philadelphia had met. Washington. As a matter of fact, Dolly was related to them, sort of. Uh, She uh, one of her sisters married one of George Washington's nephews, so it gets to be one of those family connections. So Dolly had gotten invited to the levies, so she met Martha and she met George, and she saw how they were um, socializing and doing. So she had a little bit of an example.
0: Feather, as we wrap up, um, what's one fact about uh, Martha Washington's life or personality that you would most like our listeners to take away from this episode?
1: Martha Washington was probably the ideal person to be the first. She was going to practice what she had known all her life uh she was not you know not a young woman at the time. she was an accomplished uh wife, plantation mistress hostess she was all of those things. She was not going to be a rule breaker because there were no rules then, nor was she going to be she was not going to stray far from what she had known and from what and what she had known she truly believed was perfectly acceptable, that this was how everybody should believe and should do. She uh, set the tone for how many times should she entertain. She was the one who said, and such and such a day or time will be mine and people can come to me. She ran his household. She planned his meals uh, she did whatever it was that they had to do, and she did it very well and practically effortlessly because she had been doing it all her life. I think she set a wonderful example for those who, who you know, came to follow her.
0: Well, thank you so much for this. Um, I greatly appreciate you coming on and and sharing your insight. I think you helped us to get a little better idea of this person who... In the course of this podcast, we've been mentioning here and there, but really haven't had a chance to focus in on. And, but I think that to your point, you know, her her role, she may not have been necessarily in the spotlight, but I don't think that George could have been in the spotlight as he was without her.
1: Oh no, he could not have. She made, or it, it was like. She made the stage, she set the stage for him as a, a social man, as head of state. She made sure that all the things surrounding him were happy and contented so he didn't have to worry about that aspect of his life. She was there to take care of it for him.
0: She always did. And it'll be really interesting to see how this this role And how it changes over time as new people come in, Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to. uh, We're we're nearly at the John Adams presidency, and Abigail's definitely going to be a subject that we talk about at length with that. So excellent. Well, thank you so much, Feather.
1: You're very very welcome, Jerry. And anytime I can be of help to you, give me a call.
0: I appreciate it. As noted in our discussion, Martha, like George, was not entirely enthusiastic about his election as the nation's first president, but did her duty as she felt was right for the nation. When they arrived back at Mount Vernon on March 15, 1797, though, their thoughts turned on how to do right for themselves as private citizens. As described by Martha's biographer, Patricia Brady, quote, When they arrived home, they found Mount Vernon much as it had been at the end of the revolution. The absence of its owners had led to deterioration and dilapidation, but this represented a new challenge for the intrepid pair. Martha went to work in the household while George went to work in the plantation, but their experiences with the presidency had changed them. For Martha, she found that having had a steward in the presidential mansion had been useful to her, especially considering her advanced age. And thus, she sought to establish a similar role at Mount Vernon. Some things at Mount Vernon, however, would not change. One of those being the large number of visitors that the Washingtons would have to receive just as they had ever since the Revolution. Martha would act as a guide to visitors, both in terms of the house itself and to the Washington's history. Meanwhile, the world would not stop from intruding on George Washington, as the former president was named as commander of the American Army in July 1798. Thankfully for both of the Washingtons, the former president's new position did not require him to be far from Mount Vernon for long, mainly because Washington would delegate most of his responsibility to Alexander Hamilton, but we'll get to that in the Adams series. So he only had one trip for six weeks to Philadelphia in the course of this service. For the most part, the 1797 to 1799 time period for the Washingtons was a time where they enjoyed the company of family and friends, but their domestic happiness was not to last. On December 12, 1799, George Washington, after riding around the plantation on a chilly day, started to develop a cold. Instead of resting so that he could recover, he instead went out in a winter storm to mark trees that needed to be cut. By the evening, quote, his throat was congested, and his voice muffled. In the middle of the night, he started having trouble breathing. Doctors were called and treated him, but to no avail. On the evening of December 14th, George Washington breathed his last, and Martha became the Widow Washington. When Tobias Lear, who was holding Washington's hand when he died, confirmed that he was no longer breathing, Martha remarked, quote, Tis well, all is now over. I shall soon follow him. I have no more trials to pass through. Little did she know, though, that she would be faced with a decision that would affect many people when she began her second widowhood. As George was on his deathbed, he asked Martha to get two versions of his will from his desk, one of which would be thrown into the fire so the remaining one would become his legal will. When the will was read, it was discovered that Washington had put in it a provision to emancipate his slaves after Martha's death. Washington had done it in this way in order to ensure that Martha was provided for during the remainder of her life. But she quickly realized that the clause meant that she was the only thing standing between 123 enslaved people and their freedom. She may have felt that her remaining time was short, but she didn't necessarily have a death wish either. After consulting with Washington's nephew, Supreme Court Justice Bushrod Washington Martha decided to grant their freedom early, with the 123 individuals being legally emancipated on January 1, 1801. Now, these were not all of the slaves at Mount Vernon. There were 316 total, and we will discuss in a separate episode the issue of the dower slaves. For now, just know that these were all of the slaves that George Washington owned outright and was legally entitled to emancipate, and that Martha was able to breathe a little bit easier once the emancipation was done. Some of the newly freed individuals would continue to live at Mount Vernon, while others set out on their own. And when Martha died, she only directly owned one enslaved person. This person, described by Martha in her will as, quote, My mulatto man, Elish, that I bought of Mr. Butler Washington, was not freed. Rather, he was willed to her grandson, George Washington Park Custis, quote, And his heirs forever. As noted by Patricia Brady, quote, And so much else influenced by her husband's thinking, Martha had never come to believe that slavery was wrong. She was, as Feather noted in our discussion, a product of her time and her Virginia upbringing. Mount Vernon during the last years of her life was filled with family and close friends. Her granddaughter Nellie, Nellie's husband, and their two daughters lived with the widow Washington, along with Martha's other grandchild, Wash Custis and her husband's former secretary, Tobias Lear, now acting in a similar capacity for Martha. A steady stream of visitors came to see her, and she was deluged by both, quote, letters of condolence and requests for mementos after her husband's death. Federalists who came to visit her would find Martha willing to express her thoughts on the current state of things. One visitor who came to Mount Vernon in 1802 noted that, quote, her remarks were frequently pointed and sometimes very sarcastic on the new order of things and the president administration. She spoke of the election of Mr. Jefferson, whom she considered as one of the most detestable of mankind, as the greatest misfortune our country has ever experienced. However, she would receive all guests, quote, graciously, often bestowing small mementos of her husband. Visitors usually found Martha and Nellie in the small parlor, reading, knitting, or chatting. Martha offered hospitality to all callers, breakfast, dinner, tea, lodging for the night, a walk around the house and gardens, and long conversations about the nation's history. Only a couple of years after the death of her husband, in early May 1802, Martha fell ill with one of her frequent stomach upsets called bilious fever. However, she seemed to realize that this time was different. For three weeks, she prepared for the end of her life by visiting with loved ones and taking communion. Just before her 71st birthday, Martha Dandridge Custis Washington died at noon on May 22nd with her grandchildren at her bedside. So what do we take away from this woman who played a role in the formation of the United States of America? As noted by Patricia Brady, quote, once Martha and George Washington married and he became famous, it is difficult to see her clearly. She was completely bound up in his life, and her contributions to American history were made in support of his career. Indeed, Martha helped herself to create a distance between us and her by the act of burning the correspondence between her and George to keep it from being examined by future generations. I think that act, though, reveals a great deal about who she was. Martha, while willing to serve in roles as dictated by society and even to help define new roles had a part of herself that she wasn't willing to share with everyone. She wanted to make all who came to her door feel welcome, but she would hold her intimate relationships close to her heart. In her role as the first First Lady, she not only set the standard for how the president's spouse should act in public, but also that the president's spouse should help to preserve some privacy and family intimacy in order to support the president. The struggle between public roles and privacy for presidents and their families will come up time and time again in future series, and Martha Washington will be there for those future inhabitants of the role as an example of the balance that can be achieved. Special thanks again to Feather Schwartz Foster for joining us for this episode. I will have links to Feather's website and social media available on the Source Notes page for this episode. Special thanks also to the family and friends who lent their voices to the opening quotes, Toyin, Kato, Aunt Barbara, Mark, and Alex. You are all wonderful people for indulging this history geek, and I greatly appreciate having all of you in my life. Also, as always, special thanks to the podcast audio editor, Andrew Foncook. I know that this time of year, I'm recording this in early November, can be very busy, so I greatly appreciate Andrew's efforts to ensure that this episode goes out to commemorate my mom's birth. If you, like me, could use Andrew's audio editing expertise on your podcast or audio project in the coming year, please reach out to him at Andrew at Foncook, that's P-F-A-N-N-K-U-C-H-E dot com. As for me, I can be reached via email at presidenciespodcast, all one word, at gmail.com, or on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash presidencies, or on Twitter at presidencies89. Source information for this episode, as well as past episodes, can be found on the website at presidencies.blueberry, that's b-l-u-b-r-r-y.com. Finally, if you would, please do something for me. Reach out to a loved one today and let them know how much they mean to you. Believe me, those opportunities are precious when they come, so be sure to make the most of it when you can. Thank you so much, everyone, for listening, and take care, dear friends. Until
2: next time. This is Peter. And this is Tom. We want to tell you guys a little bit about our podcast. Tom and I met in college, became best friends, and then teachers almost 20 years ago.